This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. As we stand, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for your mercy that is new every day. And I pray that today you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Sherlock Holmes author Arthur Conan Doyle once famously played a prank on 12 of his friends. He sent each person a telegram that contained just six words. All is discovered. Flee at once. All 12 left the country within 24 hours. Now, whether this is really true or just an urban legend, I honestly can't quite determine. But the story is no less powerful in its ability to get at something that assails so many people. Namely, feeling guilty. And I want to suggest that the opposite of being afflicted by guilt is knowing freedom. And today's epistle is all about freedom. Freedom from guilt, freedom from condemnation, freedom from slavery to sin, freedom to live lives that bear good fruit. Our reading began, for freedom Christ has set us free. Being a follower of Christ is all about being set free. Sadly, some people seem to think that being a Christian is about trying to live up to an impossible set of rules and moral standards. And it has to be said, some Christians do live very rigid, legalistic lives that are, frankly, anything but free. Now, of course, it's also possible to go to the opposite extreme and abuse our God-given freedom and therefore claim license to do anything we like. Well, St. Paul clearly understands these two extremes perfectly well. In verse 1 of Galatians chapter 5 that we just read, he states two things very plainly. First, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Second, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In this chapter, Paul teaches that the gospel freedom from guilt and condemnation leads us to obey God and not to please ourselves. Being set free is a wonderful picture of what it means to be a Christian. And the freedom that Christ won for us is the freedom from the consequences of sin, freedom to know life eternal, freedom to live as God made us to live and intended us to live. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And preaching in Antioch, St. Paul said, by Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from all those sins from which you could not be freed under the law of Moses. And there are, two, there are two important things that I want us to notice in this first verse of Galatians chapter 5. 
First, there is a clear statement that Christ has set us free and we have been set free for freedom. This is not freedom um, from sin and its temptations, but freedom from the law. John Stott writes, What Christ has done in liberating us, according to Paul's emphasis here, is not so much freedom to set our will free from the bondage of sin as to set our conscience free from the guilt of sin. Or in other words, we are set free from the crushing weight and tyranny of trying to keep God's law, of trying to be good, if you like, so that we might win God's approval. That approach is bankrupt. Not one person is good enough to be like God. Not one person can secure God's favour by their own hard work. The scriptures are so clear that it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. But I want you to notice the second half or the second sentence in verse 1. Don't worry, I will get beyond verse 1. It contains a clear and unequivocal command. Since Christ has secured your freedom, we must stand firm in that freedom and not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So what does this mean? Well, I think simply this. We are set free to enjoy the guilt-free conscience which Jesus gives us and makes possible by his forgiveness. Therefore, we must not slip back into the notion that we've got to win God's approval by our own efforts. And that if we're good enough and sorry enough and work hard enough, then we'll be acceptable to God. No, no, no. That is not the gospel. The good news of Christ is that he fully met all the demands of the law for us. He died in our place for our disobedience and took the condemnation that was rightly ours. He took it. So we are freed from obedience to the law as the way to win merit from God. But we are not freed from the law being uh, the way for us to please and honour and obey God. Do you see the difference? This is where you nod or shake your head and I'll have another go. Okay, good. Tim Keller has a helpful word on this. In normal religion, he writes, the motivation for morality is fear-based. In gospel Christianity, the motivation is a dynamic of love. Well, as we continue in our passage and we jump to verse 13, which is the next verse in your bulletins, Paul has more to say about our Christian freedom and he also warns us not to use our freedom as a license to live selfish lives. Verse 13, the first part, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. We don't trade being a slave to religious law um, and law-keeping for a life of unbridled hedonism. But there is a trade. We trade being a slave to self for being a slave to one another. As Paul writes, do not, second half of verse 13, do not use your freedom for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. 
And then Paul continues in the next verse, for the whole law is summed up in a single commandment, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. And then Paul goes on in this passage to spell out the contrast between a life lived for self and a life lived by the Holy Spirit. We are called by God to live a life of freedom from always trying to be good enough. But that freedom is not a license to live a life of presumptuous anarchy and self-centeredness. As John Stott puts it, Christian freedom is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. Well, I want to take a closer look at the contrast that Paul describes between the desires of the flesh and the life of the Spirit. By the way, when Paul speaks of the flesh, he does not mean our physicality as opposed, say, to our spiritual uh, capacities. Rather, he means our fallen human nature, which is inherently selfish. And so what we see is there are two natures at work in us, or we could say at war in us, our sinful nature and the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us, verse 18, that the works of the flesh are obvious. But in case we don't get it, or don't want to get it, he spells out some concrete examples. And his list covers four main areas. There are sexual sins, there are religious sins, um, there are relational sins, and then in its own category is abuse of alcohol. He includes actions and attitudes, thoughts and words. So we're going to take a look at these. First, sexual sins. He lists fornication, impurity and licentiousness. Fornication refers to sexual intercourse. Let's try that again. Refers to sexual intercourse outside marriage. Outside marriage between a man and a woman. That's not popular to say in black and white. But that's what the Bible teaches. Secondly, impurity. And this refers to unnatural sexual practices or relationships. Licentiousness. It's sometimes translated as debauchery or indecency. And it's kind of a catch-all for uncontrolled sexual sin. And by way of example, this might include pornography, lust. Frankly, anything that uses people as objects for sexual gratification. Under the next category, which I'm calling religious sins, Paul lists idolatry and sorcery. And here, Paul is referring specifically to witchcraft. So this will include engagement with or messing about with anything satanic, including Ouija boards or tarot cards or spells or any other magic powers. Now, we know from elsewhere that idolatry also happens any time... We, create, we worship the created rather than the creator. And so I wonder, what are some of the things that you worship? Well, next Paul lists relational sins, enmities and strife, being hostile to someone, being an enemy to someone, unresolved conflict. Do you have people in this room who you don't talk to? Well, that has to stop. Jealousy and envy. 
wanting what someone else has, whether it's their stuff, their spouse, their looks, their intellect, or anything else. Anger, losing your temper, sulking, going off in a mood, giving someone the silent treatment, shouting in anger, hitting, hurting. I think you get the point. Quarrels, dissensions, factions, and of course that, again, is widespread and could include cliques or destructive gossip. And then finally, Paul has something to say about alcohol, as he mentions drunkenness and carousing. This would include wild parties, obnoxious behaviour, drinking too much, and honestly, we could add any kind of substance abuse. And then Paul concludes this rather grim list with, and things like these. For this is clearly not an exhaustive list of the desires of the flesh. And then in verse 21, he issues a solemn warning. I am warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If any of the above describe habitual practices for you and are things that you are unrepentant about and you think are just fine for you to engage in, I urge you to heed the Apostle's warning. We cannot be complacent. We must not be complacent about these things. But with this solemn warning, I want you to hear again the verse I quoted earlier from John's Gospel. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And you know, that phrase, that those words of Jesus come in John chapter 8, uh, and it comes after that passage where we read of an encounter of Jesus with a woman caught in adultery. Jesus had been teaching in the temple and some scribes and Pharisees had brought this woman before her. Interestingly enough, they didn't drag the man in front of her, just in front of him, just the woman. But I want to read you from, from John 8. When they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? John tells us that Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
Do you see this? The religious leaders condemned this woman. Indeed, under the law, she stood condemned. But Jesus did not condemn her. And as we keep saying from Galatians 5, for freedom Christ has set us free. For that woman, freedom from the law's condemnation, freedom from guilt and shame, freedom from sin, but not freedom to sin. Jesus told her, go and sin no more. All right, let's go back to our epistle reading. And what a contrast we see as we keep going in this passage between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. We're not to live as slaves to our sinful natures, but rather we are to be led by the Holy Spirit. Living by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, are ways of describing living a life that is being changed by the Holy Spirit into the person that God wants us to be. This is a process. It's a process of transformation. Fruit takes time to grow. We know that. But the good news is that fruit the kind of the fruit of the spirit is actually inevitable in the Christian's life. If someone is a follower of Jesus, then they have the Holy Spirit in them, and the fruit of the spirit will grow in them. Did you notice also that Paul uses a singular term? It's not fruits of the spirit, but fruit of the spirit. You know, temperamentally, you may be more gentle or kind than the person sitting next to you. Take a look and see if that's true. Or or you may naturally be more joyful or peaceful or patient. And perhaps being generous comes easily to you. But here, Paul's description of the fruit of the Holy Spirit that grows in the believer's life is about something more than our natural temperaments, our natural dispositions. It is as we surrender our will to God's will, as we truly follow Jesus day by day, that we can expect to see these different aspects or qualities of the fruit of the Spirit growing up in us side by side. As we looked and went through individually those works of the flesh, let's take a moment and look at the fruit of the Spirit. First, love. This is about loving your neighbour as yourself. And it's worth reminding ourselves that love is a verb. It's a doing word, not necessarily a feeling word. We love because God first loved us. We love our neighbour because they're made in the image of God. We love not because somebody's life is all sorted out, not because they're particularly lovable, but simply because each one is of intrinsic value, great value, priceless, no matter how different they may be from us. Joy. This is a word so pregnant with meaning. A word that goes so far beyond the more fleeting word, happy. Joy denotes a deep trust in God, a delight in his goodness, a wonderment of who God is that he's even mindful of us. Tim Keller describes it as being the opposite of hopelessness or despair. Peace. Again, this describes uh, not the mere absence of conflict, but rather a sense of quietness and confidence and rest in God. He is Lord. He is sovereign. He is wise. Be at peace. Patience. 
this aspect of the fruit of the Spirit likely only gets seen in the face of great adversity. It's about long-suffering. It's about how you live in the face of things that you didn't cause, you cannot cure, and you cannot change. And then the fruit of patience grows as we wait. Kindness. This is all about serving others, not for what we can gain, but simply as an outflow of love. Generosity. This is sometimes translated as goodness, but whichever word we use, it is something very practical. It describes a way of being and acting that goes beyond that which we ought to do. It's, it's a word of abundance. It's about living and giving in ways that overflow with the character, goodness, and generosity of God himself. Three more. Faithfulness. Another strong word that denotes reliability, trustworthiness, loyalty, courage, gentleness. This is a word of humility. Thinking of others as better than yourself. Self-control. This might be expressed when we say no to something that we may desire, but is not right or good. This is expressed when we're willing not to have the last word. As you think about these beautiful, powerful, wonderful, inspiring, life-giving attributes of the fruit of the Spirit, I wonder where does that land with you? You know, I have to say, for me, it, it produces a sense of longing and yearning in my soul. I want to be like this. I want this fruit evidenced in my life. And yet, much as I long for that, I find myself echoing the words of the prophet Isaiah, Woe is me. I am lost, a man of unclean lips. Maybe you're thinking the same, a, a woman of unclean lips, a child of unclean lips. Or I think of St. Paul in Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Well, let's not despair. Let's be encouraged and challenged by the final two verses in our passage this morning. First, verse 24. We need to remember that we belong to Christ. We belong to Christ. Tim Keller writes, All that is his is ours. Our approval and welcome from the Father rests not on our character or actions, but on his. We are free to acknowledge where we've given up ground to the sinful nature in our lives. Free to confess where we've not sought to keep in step with the Spirit. Free to realise where we have confused our gifts or natural character with the fruit of the Spirit. And then second from this verse, St Paul reminds us that those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And note, this is not something done to us, but by us. Jesus calls us to follow him. No excuses, no delays, no yes buts. And to follow Jesus, he tells us to deny ourselves and to take up our cross daily. And so nailing our sinful natures to that cross is not a one-time deal. 
we have to keep on doing this again and again. And crucifying the flesh is a very, very strong expression. There's nothing nice or respectable or civilised about this. Just as there's nothing nice or respectable or civilised about our sinful nature. Our flesh, our sinful nature, is not to be tolerated or placated or indulged. It's to be crucified. Well, finally this morning, we are enjoined to live by the Spirit and also be guided by the Spirit. And we do this as we turn away from evil so that we can attend to all that is good. And so we stop living by our cravings and desires and live instead by the Spirit. And of course, this is a journey. This is a process. This is lifelong. It is God who gives the growth. God who produces, God the Holy Spirit who produces this fruit in our lives. But we do have a part that we can play by cultivating the soil of our hearts and minds by the habits that we practice every single day. The habits of creating space for silence and solitude, for rest and for reflection are habits that provide space for God, that provide an opportunity for us to be attentive to who he is and what he may be saying to us. And so living by the Spirit is intentional and active. Brothers and sisters, for freedom Christ has set you free. Do not submit to a yoke of slavery. Live by the Spirit. And do not gratify the desires of the flesh. May God fill each of us afresh today with his Holy Spirit and continue to grow in us good fruit that we might love our neighbours as ourselves. Amen.